Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Commonwealth Stories speaks to people from a host of nations, from Africa to Asia, from North America to the Caribbean. You'll hear the stories and thoughts of people from all walks of life, all with one thing in common. They have all found a home in Birmingham. So what does the Commonwealth mean to us now? How has it shaped the Birmingham we know today? And what lasting legacy do we hope the games coming to the city of Birmingham will leave? The Commonwealth Stories podcast is available on all your favourite platforms. To keep up to date with the series and hear the latest episodes, make sure to follow and subscribe. Welcome to the final episode of Commonwealth Stories, the podcast that explores what the Commonwealth means to modern Brummies. Throughout this series, we've heard from people from across our city, from nurses and teachers, to award-winning musicians and sports stars who have shared their thoughts, feelings, and concerns around the Commonwealth. In our final episode, we'll be looking to the future and asking what legacy we'd like to see the games leave on the city. We'll be hearing from poet and creative writer Sue Brown and researcher and educator Judith Bruce Golding. They'll tell us about their hopes for more open and honest conversations around what it means to be a Commonwealth citizen in the aftermath of the games. This is the time to ask those questions of what really happened, why did that happen, and what are we actually celebrating? The games give us the opportunity to, to show that, well, you know, we can come together under one umbrella, but the umbrella has to be deconstructed and create something else. We'll also be hearing from governance consultant Carl George, MBE and hear about his hopes for the future of, not just the area of Perry Bar where he grew up, but the wider city too. So what can the Commonwealth do to make sure senior leaders progress through to tops of organisations? We want to also see engagement from all communities. This is Commonwealth Stories by Birmingham Life. But first, Sue Brown and Judith Bruce Golding. Sue is a poet and TV and radio presenter. She was recently awarded a RTS award for her role in the 2018 BBC4 documentary, The First Black Brummies. Judith is a researcher, teacher, mental health first aid trainer and vocal performer. She has a passion for education and does a lot of work supporting disadvantaged children in Birmingham. The pair run an organisation called Nakuona, a group who celebrate the leadership, community support and business achievements of men and women from African and global majority heritage in Birmingham. Nathan Clark joins Sue and Judith via an online call. They tell us about their upbringings, their work with African and Caribbean groups in Birmingham and their hopes for the future of the city's diverse ethnic communities. Firstly, 
Would you uh, both mind just introducing yourselves a little bit and telling me a bit about uh, your backgrounds, uh, sort of how long you've lived in Birmingham and whether you've got any personal connections with the Commonwealth? So Judith, would you mind going first, please? Yes, yes. Uh, My name's Dr Judith Bruce-Golding and I have lived in Birmingham all my life. I was uh, brought up in Aston, Chalmsley Wood. Yes, I've had, it was good actually, last week I had a good conversation with my dad who said that his grandfather was in the army and that was his connection to the Commonwealth. I also found out as well, which I knew already that my my cousin Clyde McIntosh um, was in the Commonwealth Games and he came third. He's boxing runs in the family. So he was a light welterweight and he came third in the Commonwealth Games. And after speaking to my brother, he was talking to me about my other uncle in Jamaica, who also, he was a Jamaican light welterweight boxer as well for Jamaica. So it might have been on both sides. There was that competition element within the Commonwealth Games. Hi, my name is Sue, Sue Bran, and I too was born in Birmingham and have lived here all my life, really. Regarding the Commonwealth and connections, I don't think I was really aware of the Commonwealth of such until I was in my, I was about 13, 14, maybe, the games. But both my parents came from the Caribbean, came from Jamaica, and um, they came here in the 1950s before Jamaica had its independence. Within our household, we understood that the Commonwealth meant that the Queen was head of Jamaica and many of the Caribbean islands at that time. So historically, Jamaicans and many of the Caribbean folk um, saw themselves as part of what was called the uh, British Empire. Um, When I was in my teens, like I said, and started to see these games happening, I think that was more of the connection that I was aware of. I I would second that as well. I think for us, it was sport that brought everyone together. So. Mm the history of it wasn't really discussed. It was more like who's competing, yes. all of these nationalities together. And it was a showcase of the, these sporting or these different abilities that, that drew us to the Commonwealth Games. So the political sort of historical side of things never really, or when you were growing up, never really came into play. Um, no, I mean, I was aware, I was aware that uh, Jamaica had its independence in 1962, the year before year after I was born and that um but somehow even though they had their independence Jamaica was still connected to Britain via the you know and so under the umbrella of the Commonwealth and I know in some houses they would have those images of the Queen on the wall or if it was the Queen's birthday or things that were happening at school we were you know part of that at the same time um we understood that you know, we also had our own identity as being African-Caribbean or at the time West Indians. And also growing up, hearing of all the other countries that were also part of the Commonwealth, um, beginning to realise the, um, I suppose the Commonwealth was the community, I suppose, of different countries around the world under one umbrella being, you know, Britain, the Queen. And when we think about, it was the cultures that seemed to bring things together. Mm -hmm. And I remember at school, it was 
we were never taught about the Commonwealth or even Mm. colonialism or what that actually meant. And I think the word uh, Commonwealth Games, because it's just the word games and bringing people together, it seemed like that was a focus and looking at the different cultures, but not really um, the other aspects, the political aspects of what the Commonwealth Games or, or the Commonwealth served to do. Yes. Yeah, totally agree. I think it was in my roundabout, I was about 15, 16, um, at the political side of being part of the Commonwealth, that began to surface, mainly because I was in my teens and the type of people I was around and the music I was listening to, the poets of those at that time, poets such as Linton Kwesi Johnson and Muta Baruka. So there was this, there was this, um, I don't know, it, it seemed like there was this explosion of this information seeping into my peers, my generation, and people who were beginning to question, you know, the empire, British empire, I mean, as in people as in my generation, I should say. I'd love to hear a bit about your professional backgrounds. Judith, you pursued a career in education for quite a few years. What lessons did you learn as a teacher working with students predominantly from African, Caribbean and Asian backgrounds? And what made you want to pursue that career? Yeah, I think I have throughout the family, I think it's just this passion to educate. And I, I didn't realise that. I think, I, you know, the, when I talk about my upbringing, I think about living in Chalmsley Wood. At that time, I would see the eyes through a, a young child's eyes but not really realizing the the national front and just the heavy you know the the heavy presence of racism that was in the area but within the home it was almost this protective space where um you know we were looked after and that we I look at my parents and they thought outside the box um so whereas at school even though we are still in touch with uh, my old head teacher um but at school it was sort of like it, limited in what you could be I was it suggested you be be a carer or a nurse or there wasn't really that focus on what I wanted to to be or what my skills were so but within the home it's almost like you can be whatever you want to be you need to learn a skill develop your trade so I think from my parents point of view it it was the importance of developing your trade and, and your skills and hopefully you'll find what your what your strengths are so I think throughout my life journey that's always been something that I've, I've held close to me and I worked in Barclays Bank before um, but I also taught Spanish in adult education so I think that then drove me towards working with young people and then that's what I started to do and I, then I worked for over eight years with children who had been excluded from school and unfortunately there were a high percentage of young black boys and girls, and uh, as I was leaving that that world, there were more uh, Asian uh, young boys and girls who were being excluded from school. And so, the things that I've learned is just the importance of understanding identity and being accepted, and just seeing how societal values, traditional societal values, can't be can't just cover everyone. So it's important to understand the important, the the individual voices of each of those young people that we're working with. Um, because if we don't have that sense of belonging, then 
that there's a lot of problems ahead. Great, yeah. And Sue, when did you first start writing poetry and experimenting with creative writing? I first started writing poetry, or the first poem I ever wrote, I was in my 30s, about 33. And um, it was it was during what was, there was a festival, an event that used to, was held in Birmingham called the Jazz Festival. I'm not sure if it's still running, actually. Jazz Festival. And my, my dad was a jazz musician. And I've always loved jazz, but I also love reggae. And I think there was a, a conversation in my head exploring which one do I love, which one means more to me, et cetera, et cetera. And literally a piece of paper must have been next to me and a pen. And I started to write my thoughts down. I didn't recognize it as a poem, just my thoughts. I shared the, the, the piece with a friend. Uh, no, actually my brother-in-law. And he says, oh, you've written a poem. And I was quite surprised because I'd never written a poem before, or the last time I'd written a poem or looked at poetry was at school. And um, the poetry that I was exposed to at school didn't really, um, I didn't really relate to them, especially in the setting and how they were presented to me. So um, for me, it was a big surprise to know that I'd written a poem. And then um, I just continued to write my thoughts down. And um, I think most of those early poems were about social commentary, you know. So in my head, I'm questioning and talking to myself about what I was seeing in the environment that I live in, what I was hearing, the experiences of those around me, especially family and friends, especially hearing what was going on at home as in the Caribbean. And a greater part was the historical events that had happened throughout Africa's um, history, including those of us who are from the Caribbean, etc., and are now living in, you know, the UK. So my poetry tend to be a lot about that at that time. Uh, you both run uh, Nakwona, um, an organisation based here in Birmingham. Uh, Judith, could you tell me a bit about what the organisation uh, sets out to achieve? Yes, I think, you know, we are both really, really pleased with Nakawana and how far we've come. And I think really for myself, I remember before even just the thought of Nakawana, I went through a period where I was thinking about our community, the the African and Caribbean community, and just how, um, you know, there are so many amazing things happening and, and unseen acts and behaviours that are happening within our communities, but we just don't see them because sometimes we have so much stresses, internal stresses ourselves in just managing and and uh, we don't, we haven't, we hadn't had that space to sort of say, well, look, you know, I see you. And I, I was looking, I was thinking about I see you, that just kept on going through my, my head, the importance of being seen, us seeing each other within our communities and getting the support that we need and being there, networking, having those spaces where we can draw strength from each other and give strength to each other. And the the, the Nakawana came to me, um, the word, and even just looking on the internet what, what about the meanings. And I thought, that's the, that's the word, Nakawana, I see you. And it was amazing because after seeing Sue on, um, I think it was BBC, talking about the programme, 
I remember saying that, you know, I, I think I need to meet this woman because I think we can do some great work together. And then on the Saturday, I went to the market <laughs> and who does I see in front of me? And it was Sue. And we just started talking and we exchanged details. And we, we, we've we had quite a few of those moments where, you know, we might think of someone and think, yeah, I think we'd be good to do something. And from that, we've been able to do some really fantastic work together. And we look at that holistic approach in being able to support other men and women within our communities. But really, we, we focus on on women because black women, African and Caribbean women as well, because of the, the journey and the struggle that, that, that we have been through um, as well. And I, I, to add to that as well, the Nakawona ICU, I would say Nakawona, we, we aim to provide a, a safe space that we can share our experiences, you know, through our own voice, you know, and, and feel as though we don't have to maybe compromise or present in a particular way that's a little alien to us or that is well known within, you know, certain mediums we can be ourselves and the the variety of women that we work with from very young women to those elders in our community we all have a voice and there isn't much there isn't many things that are going out there on out there that is um welcoming to that so i think nakawana has um has a place you know where we can do this and we also just wanted to bring in the Cornerstone Project, which is also um, Sue's the founder of the Cornerstone Project. And I'm the co-founder, you know, it, as Sue mentioned about that voice. And that's been really powerful because it's an intergenerational experience where we've worked with the elders in the community to, to young people, younger people who are expressing their experiences within a safe space. And, it, and it's OK that's good it's okay amazing thank you so i'd like i'd love to hear a bit more about um the first black brummies just could you give us a little overview of the history when did african caribbean people first arrive in birmingham and what sort of reception did they uh, met them here african caribbean people have always been coming to the uk from as far back as perhaps even before roman time but the time that we're talking about during the war second world war because many Peoples from the Commonwealth and the um, the Empire, you know, supported the country, you know, during the World War, during those world wars, and um, so after, I think, nineteen forty five, um, Britain was left in a in a terrible state after bombings and etc. So the call was made for people to come and help rebuild the country. You know, the the those who came already saw themselves as part of Britain, being British. You know, Britain was the mother country. So, um, you know, I think straight away people said yes and started to come for many. It was a plan to come for five years and to return. Um, but when they came, many, many found that Britain wasn't as welcoming as they thought, you know, and considering they just supported Britain in the war, and uh, they return now, and there's hostility, and the racism people felt was 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 shocking for many. Some actually returned 
to the Caribbean because they couldn't they couldn't cope. They did, just didn't like it. And some stayed, many stayed. So um, I think 1948, we had the Windrush, uh, the big ship that came in um, and brought en masse those that we know of um, today who come in as uh, part of that generation. I would say for many, the environment was hostile. The weather was hostile, extremely hostile coming from the Caribbean. But I think for many, they found it um, unsettling to know that they weren't really well welcomed. But I would say that there is something about that generation in particular who thought, well, you know, we're here and we're going to do what we've come to do. Yeah. And they're very hardworking. They um, have a strong faith. Many of them are very religious and have a strong faith and have a sense of purpose. So they came and settled and did the best that they could because for many felt that they had the right to be here. Even though there were, uh, the streets weren't paved with gold, they felt, okay, we will clean it up then if we need to, but we also have a right to be here. And with the first Black Brummies, this is what many of them who were interviewed were talking about their experience. And, and it caused internal problems as well within themselves, trying to resettle in a place where you're not welcome, it meant that many left their, their children and their family in the Caribbean. Some never um, were able to return home. Some never saw their children or their, their parents themselves again. So the program looked at those experiences and how and those struggles and the challenges and how they dealt with them, you know, and trying to live a day-to-day -day life in this space. What did you learn from taking part in the programme? Was there anything which surprised you at all? All of us who took part in the making of the programme were really happy the way the, pro the, the programme was made and the way the BBC had put the programme together to, to Ed. Um, because... A lot of programmes have been made um, telling our story. And I think this is one of those programmes where our own voice told the story and the programme was edited to reflect that we were telling our story. Because many times we've seen many documentaries and films, etc., about us. And you'd say, yes, you know, we're, we, we took part in that. But when it came to the edit, it didn't quite tell story in the way that we know it should have been done. Um, and so that was surprising how well the program was put together. And the and um the program run won two television awards also. Um, so that was good. That was good. With the Commonwealth Games coming to Birmingham, it seems like um with Birmingham of course being such a diverse city, it seems like a, a good time to reflect on the UK's relationship with the wider Commonwealth. Uh, Judith, do you think it's a healthy relationship or are, are there divisions there? Yes, I think it's a good question. I mean, Sue and I have, we delib have deliberated over this and talked about, you know, the the pros and the cons. Or the On one side, you've got the, the opportunities of the Commonwealth, that what that brings is in, you know, people have an opportunity to take part in sports, enhance their well-being. Um, and that's, I suppose that's the, the things that we can actually observe. But then when we look at 
what the Commonwealth is, where the roots of the Commonwealth are, where they are rooted in colonialism. That's another conversation to look at just the, the psychological impact and also the generational impact of colonialism and the, the challenges and the barriers that, that, that black people and people of colour or co- from these colonialised countries have faced. So I think on, on one side, the Commonwealth is um, a positive opportunity, but also on the other side, it, it's it also maybe maybe it's time for a, a revamp. Um, when we think about the words, maybe it's time for change. Um, yeah. Because it, it's like unpeeling an onion, isn't it? On the outside, the, the idea sounds great, but also we look at the, the costs that have gone into colonialism. And we were talking about the the other side of the, the, the poverty or the financial challenges that are in Birmingham now that are still going on whilst the, the Commonwealth Games will be going on as well. And also with the Commonwealth, as you as you you kind of you mentioned, Judith, um I'm not sure what people understand what that means. It's a term, Commonwealth, and it's associated with games. But on the other hand, um if I break the words down, common wealth, I don't know how much of that wealth is common to the people. And and um, if the younger generation see that connection in the same way as the elder generation see what commonwealth means. And I, and I agree with you. Maybe this is a time, this is the time to say, well, what does the commonwealth, what is the commonwealth and who who is benefiting from the commonwealth? You know, and for Birmingham as a city, you know, we say it's very diverse, it's multicultural, but we're in a state where, under the, again, the, the term of the Commonwealth, there are those issues with the Windrush that hasn't been, you know, that needs to be addressed and so many other things as well. And once the games are over, you know, those issues are still there till the next time. So that I think this is a, this is a good time to look at this. What is the Commonwealth? I was just going to say, I think the beauty of what we do with um, working with groups and using their creativity has enabled us to, to, you know, people to write poetry, write down their thoughts Mm -hmm. and feelings. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you hear that pain of what they've experienced with regards to the Commonwealth and or or just even colonialism and that impact on their, their family structures or missing, you know, many of us might have parents or family in Jamaica that you, you you might not ever see or might not ever be able to trace. And so it's a, it's a long, there's a deep history there that needs to be explored. And like, you know, Sue said, we, we've, we've worked with children in schools, we've worked with elders and different people from different backgrounds who would all have a different opinion on how the Commonwealth has affected them. I think for with my parents, our parents, their understanding of being part of what was then the British Empire, you know, um, would be very different to how children see themselves today. So at school, they would start with assembly and they'd perhaps sing God Save Our Gracious Queen and there'd be images of the Queen, blah, 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 and all these kind of things. Times have changed. It's different. And so although Jamaica and, and a number of the other islands as well are part of the Commonwealth and they you know, I think the national anthem may be sung. I'm not sure because Jamaica is an independent country. Um, people are beginning to look at themselves and identity 
and our own identity and see how it fits in to that bigger picture of the Commonwealth. Who am I? Where am I? And as you say, Judith, I see you. And sometimes we're not seeing ourselves because we see that bigger image, the Commonwealth. But where are we in that? And in your experience with uh, working with lots of different communities around Birmingham, particularly the black community and other people of colour, have you got the sense that the Commonwealth Games is something which people in the community are excited about? Is it something they talk to you about? It's what you're what information you're given. If you're thinking about the Commonwealth Games, it can be quite, it's like a, I wouldn't say superficial, but that just tells you it's the Commonwealth Games. So people that are involved in the Commonwealth Games and they're representing their country, that, that's a, you know, that's a, a sign of a, an honour, you know, for many people mm. to be chosen to represent their country. This mm-hmm. is it. This is mm. where they can put on display what they've been practising. So I think, I think it's been mixed messages mm-hmm. depending on what sort of involvement that person has, whether it's got having tickets to support the event to really understanding the the, the background of the Commonwealth and, and what the, the actual event is going to be based on. So I think there's there's been mixed opinions. I've, having grown up in Birmingham all your lives, how do you feel about Birmingham hosting such an event? Is it something which the city should be promoting or or do the positives outweigh the negatives is the point I'm trying to get at? Well, I suppose there's different layers. As a city, the city wants to be seen within the country, within the world, you know, its place. And this is what we can do and this is what it represents. Um, I think on a local level, again, there is the status of saying the games have come to Birmingham and um, it's representative of the people that are in Birmingham. Yeah, all those from the Commonwealth and, um, and you know, organisations and many educational settings, schools will be a part of that. Um, so, yes, why not? But it's, it's afterwards, what happens afterwards, you know? So the games have ended, everyone goes home, all those things that have been put in place, those buildings that have been erected, um, the money that has come into the city to fund all of that. Yeah, but once it's all done, then what? You know, so it's about finding the balance, you know. So, um, yes, having the games, yes, but it has to be balanced. It shouldn't be just an event if you are truly representing your city. And if the city is saying we do not have money for um, housing or mental health or within the the local communities, i.e. those from the Commonwealth, yet money is found to put on a game. And if that money is not coming back into the city as well. That's that again, you know, that that should be looked at. I think it highlights the importance of education because it's almost like you can think, oh, it's a Commonwealth and it's great. But then who knows about the Commonwealth, like Mm -hmm. the history of it Mm -hmm. and what it's based on? So it's Mm -hmm. almost like you're eating a really nice tasting cake, but really the ingredients are are not the best and, and could be damaging. So I think it's important that whatever we we engage in, this is a time to ask those questions of what really happened? Why is this, why did that happen? And are we celebrating, what are we actually celebrating? So if we're celebrating the talents and abilities that Birmingham has, brilliant, Mm -hmm. but then what umbrella is that under? 
mm-hmm. and even under the Commonwealth, uh, or, or even when we look at um, the monarchy, or, or even just Harry and Meghan and the things that Harry has said about institutional racism and how that there's not, there shouldn't be a part that should not be in our society. We have to almost sometimes move, go back, look back to look forward. forward yeah. So whatever we're doing in our next steps, we need to look back and think maybe there needs to be a change in how we celebrate the the, the skills, the physical skills of others from different communities. So as Sue said, yeah, this is, this might be the time for change. The underline of so the foundations of how the Commonwealth came into being and historically the foundations of the, the, the you know, um, racism is so in, embedded into everything. And I think it's difficult for people to acknowledge that and to say, yes, yes, it was founded on racism and institutionalised racism is, is still running through basically everything that is happening. Um, the games give us the opportunity to to show that, well, you know, we can come together and, you know, under one umbrella, but the umbrella has to be deconstructed and create something else now. Yeah, you know, because um, it's a different world that we're living in, you know, and we have to address those uncomfortable things that we don't want to, you know. And again, those people, those who came from the Caribbean in, um, you know, after the war, they came here and it, it was a hostile environment, but they still had to face, they, they still did what they had to do. You know, they made up their mind and said, okay, and they wanted to make change and they made change and they sacrificed so much to be part of the Commonwealth. And we're still having issues today with Windrush. And you, you've both sort of touched on this already. Um, and it's my final question. What sort of impact would you like to see the Games have on the city? Yeah, I think it's, it's great to, to discuss. I think it's great to have dialogue. And it's also important to have action. So the the impact of, of the Games on Birmingham, we're going to, you know, we're going to see so m- many talents um, that, that are Birmingham bred and, you know, and UK bred. But also um, it's important for us to really discuss and look at what action needs to be taken in, in the future. As in, how how does the the future of the Commonwealth Games look like? What what does it look like? Because you know, if we're showing to, that we can come together um, as different communities, that's that's always going to be a positive. But it's it's important that we understand. It's it's having that time to understand the different communities, looking at what support do different communities need, and being able to respond to that support. So I think you know. It can be a big impact if we address the right things before, during, and after. And like Sue said, you know, you can have this wonderful games, this these great feelings of this. This is what has happened, and then after six months later, there's still psychological needs within our community that are not being met, and and that's just a bit sour, really. The time and effort that has been put in to organising and the investment that's been put in to, you know, to that has been invested into in the games. I think 
that should be um, looked into as part of that conversation, that action needed to make those change. So, you know, if you put it, if I don't know how much the game, how much it costs to put in, um, to put the games on, but the time it's taken to get the games to the event to where it is now, that time should be invested into finding out and meeting all those people, all those within Birmingham who would like to be part of the change. Sue and Judith hope the Commonwealth Games can act as a springboard for open and sometimes difficult conversations about what the Commonwealth is, what it represents, and who it benefits. They also hope for a wider discussion around the importance of celebrating diversity and championing racial equality in our city. One man who's got high hopes for the future of Birmingham is Carl George, MBE. Carl grew up in Perry Bar in the 70s, his parents emigrated from Jamaica and St. Kitts. Carl is now a world-leading consultant in governance. He has worked with boards and senior executives from a host of different companies, including Birmingham 2022, the organising committee of the Commonwealth Games. He spoke to Nathan Clark about growing up in Birmingham at a time of great excitement, but also great tension. He also discussed his career achievements and MBE and his hopes for a lasting legacy from the Commonwealth Games in places like Perry Bar. I'd love to ask you a bit about uh, your background. How long have you lived in Birmingham? Right, I've lived in Birmingham all my life. I grew up, um, I'm 54 now, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And if you remember, and I'll mention a couple of groups because that'll give you an idea of the era that I grew up in, was Steel Pulse and Bob Marley, um, UB40. So that's the kind of era that I grew up in. Um, lived in Birmingham all my life, um, but I'm a born and bred Brummie. Great. And have you got any personal connections with the Commonwealth? For instance, are your family from Commonwealth countries? Yes, um, I have got connections. And again, linking back to what I said about the era that I grew up in, um, my dad's from Jamaica, uh, my mum's from St Kitts, and my granddad um, on my mum's side is from Barbados. Um, and they're different aspects of growing up because in that time we had the Hansworth riots. Um, there was a lot of tension between black people and the police at the time and tension with various communities. So I grew up in a generation where although I was born in the UK, was born in Birmingham, I always thought of home as Jamaica, never ever been there. And this link with the Commonwealth um, and Commonwealth countries was almost like Actually, although I'm born here, I actually come from Jamaica. Um, I mentioned my grandfather because he was a little bit different. In Barbados, they're very, very uh, different to my upbringing with a Jamaican father. And even my mum was Kittishan, um, a small island in the Eastern Caribbean. But they were a lot more British than the British sometimes, the Barbadians, um, and took Commonwealth very, very seriously. And am I right in thinking you grew up in Perry Bar? Um, which is obviously the site of the Commonwealth Games now. Yes, I grew up in Perry Bar and um, where that site is, and they've got lots of um, different images of Perry Bar. Um, and if you think back to the 70s, we had the flyover that was being built. So I was a young young man that was then taking the traffic from Perry Bar into the city centre. Um, and Perry Bar is kind of a little microcosm of Birmingham from my point of view because you've got Aston, 
you've got Great Bar, you've got Handsworth, you've got Birchfield, you've got Lazelles, and we're kind of right in the middle of all of that, of the hub of activity, lots of different communities, lots of different people interacting. And we got, I think it was in the 80s, 90s actually, that we got One Stop, one of those big multi-centres for the first time. And my mum would have went to the Harriers, my mum passed away, um, but she would have went to the Harriers as a runner, but we know it's as Alexander Stadium. And we're now seeing that that's been developed as well. And there was a bingo down the road from me in Perry Bar um, that is now a function suite. And I can remember the cinema going, the cinema turned into a bingo, then the bingo turning into function suites. And the function suites owned by the Asian community because the demographics of the area has changed over the years. So, um, so I've got many, many important memories of Perry Bar and growing up there with a number of communities. I've seen those communities change over the last 30 or 40 years um, from a strong African-Caribbean presence as the white people moved out to Great Bar and then the Muslim community, in particular in Perry Bar, because we've got a couple of mosques there, quite a few mosques, have then taken over more and the African-Caribbean people have moved out a little bit. Um, and then we're seeing um, lots of other Europe, Eastern European groups coming as well. What sort of impact would you like to see the Games have on the area? I'm, I'm familiar with this 2040 plan, is it, that um, the City Council talking about with an urban village, with um, transport infrastructure change, looking at the sites and so on. Um, and the impact for the area, I'd like to see some kind of legacy coming out of these Games and the £700 million pounds leveraged into our communities. Um, so it's good to see something after the games actually seen in Peribar with some of those plans that we've heard talked about. In terms of the community, also having that engagement with the games and the engagement with everything that we've heard about. Great. I'd, I'd love to touch on your professional background, Carl. Um, could you first explain what governance consultancy is and why it's important? Yes, yeah, so governance is, well, if I give you a definition first from Sir Adrian Cadbury, um, he is what we'd probably call the father of governance. And when I say Sir Adrian Cadbury, is Cadbury's, the chocolates. And he says that it's corporate governance is the system by which companies are directed and controlled. So governance really is about the leadership of organisations. It's the systems that lead them and it's how we direct the executive team and how we control and supervise the work that they're doing. And Bob Garrett, who's another governance guru, he's written a book called The Fish Ruts from the Head. And I like to reference that because corporate governance for me talks about leadership. And if you get the leadership right, then we can get success. So in simple terms, governance is really about the leadership of an organisation. And I work with boards, I work with senior executives, to ensure that they get the governance right. And that's training executives who are in the boardroom or ensuring that organisations comply with a governance code and a governance framework. And this is from the smallest of organisation, a school, a charity, a housing association, right up to a large international global organisation working in countries around the world. But the governance principles 
are the same no matter where you go. And are there any particular areas within governance which you specialise in or think are particularly important? Yeah, one of the key areas that I work on in corporate governance now is in looking at the supported senior leadership team. So trying to make sure we get diversity in the boardroom. Um, it's a really challenging area because the demographic sometimes of talented people in those areas are sometimes called difficult, hard to reach. Um, and what I say to people sometimes is actually no excuses. We've got people who are board ready and you need to go out there and look for the senior leaders and look for the people who've got the skills to carry it out. The last couple of years, I've been working on what I call a race equality code. So we've got governance codes for a number of areas for the business. Um, we've got a number of pledges around what you can do in terms of representation and how you can influence people in employment and in workforce um, with the McGregor Smith report, with the Race at Work Charter, even the diversity in boardroom pledge that I developed some years ago. So we've got all of these things, but not an accountability framework. So I developed an accountability framework in the same way that we have governance codes so that we can be a little bit more robust as to how we make sure organisations are accountable for how they recruit, how they retain, how they ensure people progress from diverse backgrounds. In particular, we'll see that race demographic is one that we really need to tackle. Bearing in mind, Birmingham, um, I don't know if it's something like 60% of the population of students coming in now are non-white, and we'll see from the latest census when it comes out in a few months as to what this super diverse city looks like. I'd like to touch on your work around working with the organising committee of Birmingham 2022. And you, you touched on diversity there. Uh, last year, the committee faced criticism for a lack of diversity uh, on, on the board. Um, in your experience working alongside the organisers, have, have things improved at all since then? The, the, there was a dramatic improvement in the, the leadership committee structure very soon after myself and a number of colleagues spoke to them. To be fair, some of the changes were going to be done anyway, but the committee itself looks completely different from when it first was announced, with one black man in the middle. We now have a number of other people, as you're probably familiar with. However, I would have liked to have been able to work with the board and senior leadership team about some of the structural reasons why that was allowed to happen. And because they've had to do things in a much shorter space of time, um, I wasn't comfortable with working with something that wasn't going to leave a legacy, and we didn't have enough time to do that. What we did do, however, is I had about half a dozen or I think about eight people from the Commonwealth join one of my leadership programmes. So I've been training young leaders for about 10 years now. We've trained over 200, and then we get them onto boards in the private, public and voluntary sector. They spend six months, learn about corporate governance, take an exam at the end as well, and then we try to deploy them. So we have had about half a dozen people from the Commonwealth Young Leaders sitting on this programme. So at least after the Games, we've got people that are going to go out into various board appointments. And I know already at least two of them, one's applied 
for an appointment and one has just got an appointment already. With Birmingham being such a diverse city, as, as, as you touched on, why is it so important that a board like Birmingham 2022 is representative of the city which it um, represents? That, that question is really important because sometimes people think diversity is really about tokenism, about making sure we've got a black face there or a woman's face. But actually, the days of just trying to do diversity to tick the box so that we comply with the law or it's the nice thing to do has gone. The credit referencing agency Moody's in the private sector, your credit worthiness will be increased by the diversity of your board. McKinsey's reports tell us that if you have got diverse, this is ethnicity, not just gender, in your boardroom and leadership, your profitability will be better. So this isn't about tokenism. It isn't about nice to do. This is about competitiveness. This is about getting talent and cognitive diversity. People who will think differently, people who bring different things to the party, and all at a base level of competence, They've got the right skills, they've got the right areas of finance, legal, HR, governance, but they bring a different background. And because Birmingham is so diverse, you can't have the same homogenous group of people of the same background, same age group, making decisions. And those decisions, they won't even be around when some of those plans are in place. We're talking about HS2, we're talking about... 2040 with business, villages and so on. Decisions that are being made should have younger people as well as people from those diverse communities making decisions that their children are going to benefit from. A lot of people have said the Commonwealth Games, like the concept of the Commonwealth is sort of quite outdated. It has sort of dark roots to colonialism and empire and that this isn't something with Birmingham being such a diverse city, which which should be promoted and celebrated. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Are you personally excited by the coming of the Games? Yeah, I, it's an interesting question. And I'll, I'll go back to 2004, um, nearly two decades, um, when I received my MBE. And I was abroad at the time, and I was on a BBC radio interview. And Robert Beckford, a colleague of mine, friend of mine, called me up. And he said, the first thing he said, are you going to accept the MBE? And that just threw me at the time because I was thinking, you're, you're calling me to congratulate me, you're calling me to say that was really good. And the first thing he said is, are you going to accept it? And I was conflicted at the time in terms of I did accept it because we do have those, as I told in my background, how I grew up, uh, conflict with colonialism, racism, the context of slavery, and all of the work that I did as a young man growing up. And at the same time, very proud that my the work that I'd done in the community, um, I started an organisation called 100 Black Men, the first international chapter of an organisation that mentors 100,000 young people. I set up the Black Business, helped to set up the Black Business Association. I chaired the African Caribbean Business Forum. I had an accountancy practice in the city centre serving the black and other communities. So I was very proud of the work that I'd done at a very young age. So I was conflicted a little bit by the concept of MBE. I, so I didn't say Master of the British Empire, whatever the title is. I used the acronym rather than the full title. Um, I, I do use it in my 
the work that I do. And it's a similar thing with Commonwealth. As people talk about plantation games and another number of areas of how people have described it. But if we look at the concept, if we look at the opportunity of the Commonwealth Games and what we can benefit from in Peribar, I think I'm supportive of us trying to come together as a community to be proud that we've been able to win it and also to make sure, and this is challenging, that we do get some legacy as a result of the Commonwealth. Great. And what does that legacy look like? Uh, legacy for me is, as I said, um, a bit like that 2040 programme. It, it, it's a bit like what's going to happen, capital programmes after. What's going to happen with leadership? We talk about senior leadership and making sure we change that demographic in Birmingham. So what can the Commonwealth do to make sure senior leaders progress through to the tops of organisations? We want to also see engagement from all communities, whenever there's public funding, whenever this £700 million is coming in, we want to see local businesses, local people benefiting from that finance and having sustainable businesses that we can see after the Games that have continued in existence. 90% of businesses are small businesses and a lot of the employment comes from those small businesses. So let's see how we can make sure they are more sustainable in the future and not just the large corporates coming in from outside the region and taking on all these big contracts. Throughout this podcast, we've heard the unique stories of many Commonwealth citizens, all of whom call Birmingham their home. They've spoke to us about settling in the second city, their hopes for its future and their feelings on the wider Commonwealth. But one thing that has stood out in every interview we conducted was the need for conversation and for greater dialogue across communities in our city. We hope that this podcast can act as a springboard for the difficult discussions which need to take place around the Commonwealth, for its history and its future. We'd like to give thanks to all of the guests that featured on this series. Thank you for your honesty and openness and for sharing your unique takes on life here in the Second City. We'd also like to give special thanks to Birmingham City University for the contributions from their academic staff and aiding in the facilitation of the project. We'd also like to thank the staff and community members at Migrant Voice and Sati House for their involvement with the project and continued relationship with Birmingham Live, helping us to better report our marginalised communities in our city. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners, for listening to our podcast series. The Commonwealth Games is one of the most important sporting events our city has ever held. And we hope you enjoy the summer of sport, music and culture. But we also hope that you take time to reflect on the nature of the Commonwealth. What it is, what it represents, why it exists and what it means to be a Commonwealth citizen. What's going to be the legacy? Is it going to be, are we going to have free access to leisure centres and swimming pools after the Commonwealth Games gone? The Commonwealth Games is actually a tool that we can use to move forward and progress. How does the Commonwealth ignite that will for change? We cannot change the past, but we can learn from the past, we can improve from the past. But I think it's the first time that the Commonwealth Games is being held somewhere where actually the city and the region are reflective of the Commonwealth. 
I don't think you get that kind of vibrancy in terms of that multiculturalism anywhere else in the UK or as much as you do here in Birmingham. I was born in Punjab, but I'm made in Birmingham. As we know, the Commonwealth, the world lives in Birmingham. Birmingham is like a melting pot. We've seen an influx of people from all over the world come to settle in Birmingham. And that's added to the, the rich cultural tapestry of what is Birmingham today. This beautiful, vibrant city. This is the greatest opportunity for us to stand up on that world stage. Massively excited about this. I'm very proud that all of the heritages are coming together. Meeting people from various nations, you know, that will bring a, a new and uplifting spirit. I hope that some sort of really good investment comes out of it and helps to sort of to assist in Boeing's transition from the sort of the, the manufacturing city it once was. And there are plenty of really good, high quality jobs um, for the sort of the next generation. Embrace the games, make something happen and take ownership from this fantastic opportunity. We need something that's going to change and inspire the younger generation. Is it a time Verbigam can be a good place which can start harmonising conversations? It's just a great way to be out there, to accept people as they are, understand and learn about new cultures, celebrate some sport and just have some fun. Commonwealth Stories is a laudable production, brought to you by Birmingham Live. To find out more about the upcoming Commonwealth Games and to discover more about the guests who are featured on this episode, make sure to head over to the Birmingham Live website. This is Commonwealth Stories by Birmingham Live. How can the conversation that's undoubtedly been started now continue?